This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. We're going to start by making a cut in the middle of our chicken breast, and then we're going to fill it with some tinfoil. Hi, I'm Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to I See Why Am I. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And this week is a momentous one, and no, I am not talking about the queen finally kicking the bucket. Today, I See Why Am I is finally getting its long-deserved recognition on an international stage in none other than the dictionary. On Wednesday, Merriam-Webster announced that it was inducting more than 350 new words and terms into its hallowed halls of lexiconical fame. Including yeet, great choice, pumpkin spice, meh, MacGyver, and Luke, spelled L-E-W-K. Pronounced Luke, not Luke. But the thing is, I don't give a shit about any of these. Because the most important addition is I-C-Y-M motherfucking I. Some of you might be sitting at home thinking, Rachel... That's just an abbreviation. You named your show after an abbreviation and they're adding it to the dictionary. And to you, I would say, quit being a motherfucking hater. You're just trying to keep a bad bitch down because I know deep in my soul that when you look up, I see why I'm in the dictionary now, you'll see a little cartoon head of my face. And that is powerful. Mama, I made it. On today's show, we are going to be talking about Food, specifically the wild and constantly changing world of the internet food content economy. Despite how much I love food, and I love food to the point that I will not eat if the food is not good, we actually don't discuss it that often here on the show unless it's something viscerally disgusting like pink sauce or viral like the Emily Mariko salmon bowl, which I continue to eat once a week, and that's a conservative estimate. So when we decided to do today's episode, I knew I needed to call in an expert. Later in the show, y'all be hearing from one of my favorite food writers and internet presences, Bettina McAlintal. She's currently a reporter at Eater, and she's written for Bon Appetit and Vice. She also has an absolutely incredible TikTok at CrispyEgg420, where she documents some of the beautiful food she's eating, and it is chef's kiss in like the original iteration of the term. Together, we'll be discussing the changes that TikTok has wrought on internet food content, the kind of inherent entitlement that we as viewers tend to approach food content with, and the bygone era of tasty videos. All of that after a short break. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7, U.S.-based, live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back with Bettina McAlintel, a reporter for Eater who has been covering internet food culture for about four years now. When I sort of came into food writing, it was like 2018. So it was still very like the height of Instagram. And so I think it was sort of like the, you know, we were really hitting that sort of like professionalization of Instagram, or it was like, a lot of people were professional bloggers and professional sort of Instagram creators. And they sort of, you know, they had that like look of stylized, perfect Mm -hmm. food. And I think that the thing, the really big change that I've seen uh, more recently has sort of been like the rise of TikTok, right? And sort of like this like destabilization of the like professional Instagram food or food blogger model. And it's sort of much more like anyone can sort of make food content now. And it's like, there is sort of less of this sense that everything needs to look sort of perfect or that you need to be, you know, a particular kind of chef or particular kind of recipe developer to be making food content. And so I think it's like now we're just sort of seeing like a lot more people making things um, and a lot more people sort of like being included in like the food content world. Yeah, definitely. I feel like 2018 was around maybe the end of the Tasty video era, um, where everything was like the disembodied hand shot from overhead. And now we have the kind of, I feel like the content I gravitate towards is usually what people describe as like cozy. So like you actually know who the person is who's making it. I do think that's like TikTok kind of revolutionized that. Yeah, totally. And I think it was partially just also like with COVID, like so many people were home Mm -hmm. and so many people were cooking and then we're just also sort of like making, coincidentally making videos on their phones. 2020 was also the moment when TikTok really came to dominate the U.S. social media scene. It's the year when... I'm going to say adults because the teens have always been up on this shit where adults realize that the platform was more than like Charlie D'Amelio dancing. So you have this kind of seismic shift away from the professionalized, glossy Instagram aesthetic towards the sort of intentionally homespun TikTok vibe, which brings us to a beautiful tweet that you sent out on August 30th. Something I've been thinking about a lot, especially after seeing complaints about Emily Marco's bowls as boring, repetitive, is how so much food online is interpreted and assumed as primarily done for other people and audience as product content versus nourishment with filming secondary. And I have to ask, like, what inspired this tweet? What were you doing at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday (laughs) that had you just ready to send off this incredibly (laughs) succinct tweet? (laughs) Okay, so I think part of it is that, like, there was, like, sort of this conversation happening about gloves in cooking videos, like, at that time. And sort of how, you know, a lot of people are weird about gloves on, like, when they watch a video. Like, there's sort of this expectation that people, you know, some people really want to see anyone cooking, like, wearing gloves for some reason. Mm. But also sometimes it's kind of weird because it's, like, a lot of people are just cooking at home for themselves. But so why would they wear gloves, right? And so there was sort of, like, this, this little conversation on Twitter just about 
you know, how people are wearing gloves and sort of like gloves is sometimes like indicating that food is like meant to be sort of consumed by other people and not just mm. like something that the creator is going to like eat themselves. Right. But also I think the bigger picture thing is just that as a person who has sort of like accidentally uh, become a person who like shares a lot of my cooking online, I think that I, you know, I see a lot of these sort of expectations around you know, what people, how people sort of are interpreting food, even if it's just like, you know, I would describe myself as like a normal person who likes to cook, like posting my cooking. But I think that sometimes when I'm like posting my cooking or seeing the seeing the way people interact with my content, I can tell that they see sort of, you know, they don't see it as just like me making lunch. They see it as like a video that they should learn from. And the food is sort of there for like their instructional benefit, for example. You mentioned Emily Marco in your tweet, and I think that she kind of perfectly gets to this dynamic that you're referring to, this idea that making food content is inherently instructional rather than for the edification of the person creating it. That's the sound of Marco making one of her dishes. Most of her videos don't include her voice. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with Mariko, we did an episode on her viral salmon rice bowl that, as I said, I still eat at least once a week. The episode is called The TikTok Salmon Bowl Can't Save Us, and it came out on October 16th of last year. All of this to say, Bettina, how do you feel about Mariko? I find her videos very enjoyable. I find her food very enjoyable like it's a lot of stuff that I would eat and I think that like the interesting thing has been like to see sort of the backlash to Emily Marco in that it's like I think there's this thing on the internet where like a person or a thing gets to a certain level of sort of popularity or views and then people just start hating for no reason right like and so I feel like Emily Marco is a person who's very much ended up in this position that like I'm not sure that she like meant to be TikTok sort of like go-to like casual cooking person but it just sort of ended up that way and so I think that you know and I think that's opened her up to a ton of like sort of weird criticism that I think that you know if I like I as a fairly normal person like start cooking you know you could very much make the argument that like my food is like boring or repetitive or that Mm. I do some weird thing with my posture or whatever right but I think that like (laughs) I think that sometimes the criticism she gets is sort of like overblown just because she's so big. I remember when the salmon bowl first went viral, there was this almost surprise that someone that looked like her was eating rice because I think so many people are used to aspirational food content. I think that part of this too, speaking of the aspirational thing, is like I feel like we're in an interesting moment with like almost like a backlash to aspirational things like Mm -hmm. the photo jump aesthetic and this sort of like presenting yourself on the internet in a way that seems more like air quotes real has made I think a lot of people sort of immediately you know dislike anything that sort of looks air quotes like intentionally aspirational but I think the thing that I like think about a lot is the fact that like sometimes people are doing things on the internet that like has that that that, like image of being aspirational but it's not really meant to like I don't think it's like, I, I don't know. I think that sometimes I'll get comments about like my food being a lot of effort or a lot of work, right? And I think, but it's mostly because I like it. It's not because I'm trying to like, you know, create some image that I think other people need to sort of opt into. Okay, so I love that you're bringing up your kind of accidental foray into influencing. It is actually one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. 
You single-handedly turned last summer into my summer of big metal bowl salads, and I have not looked back since. But did you notice this inherently instructional dynamic first as a creator or as a journalist? I think I always noticed from afar the sort of like, you know, someone posts a picture and they'll get like a recipe in the comments, right? Like even Mm -hmm. if if there isn't a recipe, they'll like, people will request it. So I think I sort of noticed that, but it didn't really sort of, but I don't think I really sort of thought about it in a bigger picture sense until I had started, I started posting my own content. Yeah. So when you say a bigger picture sense, what do you think this dynamic, where do you think it's emerged from? And what do you think it kind of says about where we are right now in terms of like internet food content? Yeah. So, I mean, I think part of it is like, is that transition from sort of like the blogger Instagram era to this like democratized TikTok food era, where like, I think that a lot of people sort of got used to seeing, you know, blogger recipes on Instagram and they knew it would come with a recipe and they knew that it was going to be something that was like, you know, that would, it would click through to a blog or it would be like some way of promoting someone's cookbook or something like that. And Mm. I think that like with TikTok, you know, and more people making things and like, I think that TikTok, you know, spans this much bigger range of like educational videos, but there's also like the vibey ASMR stuff that's like fully just for like, you know, the feeling and not sort of the instruction. And I think that's part of it is sort of not everyone who's watching it understands that sort of breadth of like, content types and Mm. so I think that sometimes people will see things that are meant to be sort of like vibes or ASMR or just like archiving or documenting and I think they still sort of bring that like expectation of sort of the previous era to it so I think that is sort of like the big thing because with TikTok you're not you know I think even more so than Instagram you're like not really controlling how you see something or like what you don't see the context of like a creator's other work you're just sort of seeing the video and like putting your own expectations onto it. Yeah, TikTok really collapses context in a way that no other social media platform has before, right? Like when you follow an Instagram food blogger or you follow someone on Tumblr or Twitter, you know what kind of content you're signing up for, whether it be vibey or shit posting or instructional. But TikTok's algorithm just puts anyone into your FYP, which means that viewers are really kind of just pulling creators into their own context. There's this interesting dynamic I see now in the comments section where a commenter will ask a creator to do something like a certain makeup look or a recipe or try out something or whatever. And the creator will comment back, I've already done that, just scroll back. And that dynamic seems really specific to TikTok. The demand for a recipe on every food video is really interesting, especially for someone like you, Bettina, who isn't trying to do this full time. You're just posting to post. Yeah, I think like, I mean, I think that's the thing that makes it weird is that like, I'm fully just posting for myself. And I sort of enjoy the act of like, lately, I haven't because it's so much work. But like, I I do sometimes enjoy the act of like filming or like making the content, right. And I'm like doing that because I like it. And I'm not necessarily doing it because I want to show like, the most discreet, like understandable steps for a viewer, you know, Mm -hmm. where do you think that kind of It's almost a sense of entitlement. Where do you think it comes from? Oh, yeah, it's definitely a sense of entitlement. I think it's just, I mean, it's just the fact that people are so used to everything on the internet being free for so long. You know, like, Mm. it's like... It's like the recipe thing or it's the expectation that, you know, your favorite creator is going to respond to you and tell you where they got their genes. Like, there is just this 
And I think we've just like gotten to this point where the internet, where people just expect things and they don't want to do the sort of like extra step of like opening up the Chrome tab and like searching <laughs> for it themselves. They like expect that it should be there for them. Okay. Okay. Hold that thought because we have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss how this sense of entitlement affects creators, whether it's specific to food content, and the default assumption that everyone posting online is trying to be a capital C content creator. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. In 2007... TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. and We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. And we're back with Bettina. Before the break, we were talking about the ways that TikTok collapses the context that creators are creating in and how that encourages viewers to basically assume that the creator of every piece of content that crosses their feed has the same intent, which is to be an influencer. But Tina, you came up with a great term for this in a follow-up tweet to the one we were discussing before the break. You described it as the everyone is a content creator economy. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's hard. I think, it, but I think that like, I don't know. I hate like pointing every, like being like everything is because of TikTok. But I do think that like. I mean, it's a seismic shift. Like the app changed a lot. Like, I do think that, like, TikTok, for example, like, made a lot more people feel like they, like, I feel like before with YouTube, it didn't feel like you were, like, I didn't feel like I was going to, like, make a video of my morning routine, right? Like, it felt a lot more, like, inaccessible or felt like more work. And I feel like with with TikTok, we sort of normalized, like, everyone filming everything and sort of mm-hmm. interacting with daily life in a way that is, like, you are aware of how you could present it to other people. Part of that seismic shift that TikTok's really kind of honed is the ability to go viral without intending to. And that existed and exists on other platforms like Twitter and Tumblr, someone on Facebook. But the TikTok algorithm really does sometimes seem to just pick things to go viral at random, turning normal people into public figures overnight. See Couch Guy. But what that's created to me, and at least it sounds like to you as well, Bettina, is this pervasive idea that basically everyone's trying to be an influencer until proven otherwise. And if it's coming from an influencer, it's aspirational. And if it's aspirational, it needs to come with an instruction manual. 
I mean, I think if anything, I think it's just going to, I, I don't know. I think we're just moving in a direction where like, you know, cause it seems like increasingly more TikTok chefs are like trying to sell you something or there's more and more people who are using TikTok as a way of promoting like this thing that they're going to mail to you or sell for you or whatever. Right. And so I think we're just moving more into this thing where people interpret sort of what they're seeing on TikTok, especially with food as like some sort of ad or some sort of product or something that they can opt into in their personal lives. Yeah, and that really feels especially true with food. I think it's partially that so much of how people have interacted with food media content, you know, pre-social media even, was like intended to be instructional. Like if you watched the cook mm. the Food Network, for example, yeah. everything, like most sort of food things you watched were either like completely a competition or it was like a, a cooking host sort of explaining everything to you. And I don't think that we've had necessarily like these like, examples of like vibey food content or like ASMR mm -hmm. food content really until you know the social media era and I think that like especially you know a lot of that was easy to sort of ignore on YouTube like I think there's a lot of people who still never saw like ASMR food on YouTube it just sort of like passes them by yeah. but I think like on like an Instagram feed or in a TikTok FYP that stuff sort of like you know it's it's going to new people for the first time I think. Something I've been thinking about lately is how this affects people of color specifically. Like, the demand that a dish be easily replicable really does just kind of end up exotifying certain cooking techniques or ingredients. And it's usually those that most Westerners haven't interacted with. Like, to be aspirational has to be relatable. And what's deemed relatable is usually what's deemed white. I don't know. I think that people of color definitely, I feel like especially with food, there sort of is more scrutiny almost. Yeah. Like, for example, like I noticed that like I did a thing in a cooking video that I saw like a much bigger white food creator do. Not that, mm -hmm. you know, not that much before me. And like I definitely got more criticism for it. Mm. And I was like, OK, this is interesting because, yeah. you know, because it's like the same technique, not like I'm necessarily like saying anything different or doing anything that's like super different but I was like this is an interesting sort of like data point I think race definitely affects sort of how per sometimes people perceive your authority on f yeah. in food content I feel like there's this way in which when people of color are cooking on TikTok that like the ingredients or the techniques or the dishes they're making are kind of framed as like inaccessible in a way that like other people maybe might not be like I remember like specifically like Emily Marco people are like where do I find QP mayo totally I think that also just from like a content creation standpoint it's like if I'm putting a caption on something right it's like what do I feel like is like I feel like QP mayo for example is so basic that you don't need to explain it right yeah but then sort of reading comments you realize like certain things like oh maybe people would have preferred if there was a caption explaining it right even though it's even if it seems like very familiar to me like there is still the sense that you like sort of can't control who your audience is and that you might be that like there are people who might not understand sort of like my perspective or what I'm doing yeah it's kind of like the um the explanational comma or whatever where it's like what exactly totally. am I gonna choose to explain to people and like why and I feel like that when you're a content creator and that is the choice that you're making as your career, then you err on the side of doing more. But when you're just a normal person posting, it's like, why do I have to explain my life to you? Yeah, exactly. 
that dynamic seems really frustrating of just wanting to share and document your own life only for people to come in and kind of demand a step-by-step tutorial. I see accusations of gatekeeping flying around a lot, especially on TikTok, when someone refuses to share how they do their makeup or where they got something, which... Okay, I have to say, sometimes I catch myself tapping on my non-influencer friends' Instagram posts to see where they got their dress, which means I'm also brain poisoned. And it is sometimes frustrating when you see something you like and you don't have the immediate link to go buy it. But I'm also not owed that information, you know? And on the flip side, I do think having access to these like aspirational lifestyles kind of fucks a lot of people over. You know, I think that there is this sense that if you're, I think there can be this sense that if you're not making like an elaborate, beautiful meal, or if you're eating something that's the same all the time, or that you're like making something that's just totally like thrown together, fully sustenance. Like, I think that sometimes that can feel like, like it can feel like you're doing something wrong if you're not Mm -hmm. sort of like, you're not doing the most with your food. And I think And I think that can be, that's really hard. Like, I think, I mean, I think the Instagram, like, blogger era was really hard and then it, like, set up all of these unrealistic expectations for people about how they should cook. And, like, you know, for most people, like, I cook in a really sort of, like, extra way because that's, like, what I like to do and I have the time and it's my main hobby. Um, But, you know, I think that sometimes this, like, way of presenting and interacting with food online can sort of ignore the fact that, like, most people don't want to do that. Like, most people just, like, literally just want to feed themselves And I think the thing is also that, like, I always think about the fact that, like, there's so much stuff that I make that I don't post online, right? Like, Mm. I am sort of, like, even though I'm sort of trying to be, like, a normal person cooking and I'm trying to show, you know, I'm, like, obviously still showing stuff that's, like, the best version and I'm not going to post every single day when I'm just eating, like, like, tuna mayo on rice, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not posting that. Like, I've been eating that every day for breakfast, but, you know, it doesn't make it onto the feed. And so I think it's just, like, remembering, like, I feel like... Yeah, I feel like we're all sort of always remembering that, like, no matter what, like, no matter what, how things shift on sort of like what we're seeing on TikTok and Instagram, it's still always a choice of like what you're posting and what you're not sharing. I just think that we're in a sort of very interesting time for sort of like food and the internet. And there are things that are exciting about the current moment where I'm like, oh, there's like more normal people cooking and sharing their food. But then, you know, I think there's still a lot of these like existing pressures and expectations that we're still sort of falling into. That was Bettina McAlintal, a reporter at Eater. You can find her on TikTok at CrispyEgg420 and on Twitter at Bettina Mac, that is M-A-K. I really loved our conversation, specifically the fact that it released me from the pressure to cook every single beautiful meal that I see coming across my TikTok feed. And I hope it did for y'all too. All right, that is the show. We'll be back in your feed on Wednesday, so please subscribe. It is the best way to never miss an episode, to never miss a discussion about food. Please leave a rating and review in Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. Tell your chef friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod, which is also where you DM us your questions and your favorite TikTok recipes. I don't promise to make them. And you can always drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Daniel Schrader and me, Rachel Hampton. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of audio. 
see you online or in the kitchen. Bitch, not rest in power to the fucking queen. <laughs> Hi, y'all. I hope you're enjoying today's show. If this is your first time listening, then a welcome to the ICYMI squad. We are thrilled to have you here. In case you missed it, that joke is made every single week. And we come out twice a week on Wednesdays and Saturdays. You are currently listening to the Saturday episode. And this Wednesday's episode was on an illicit production of Hamilton put on by a church in a city in Texas, a city that happens to be my nemesis. You don't want to miss it. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 